Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. This is Episode 3, State of California versus Jennifer Lynn Henderson. Last week I said we were looking at California versus Scholar DeLeon. However, in my research, I discovered that the California Supreme Court has yet to issue an opinion in his direct appeal, which means that his conviction and death sentence aren't final yet. That also applies to California versus John Fitzgerald Kennedy, an accomplice whose case is also still pending on direct appeal. So tonight we'll talk about the case against Leon's ex-wife, Jennifer Lynn Henderson. Henderson was, was an accomplice after the fact in the December 2003 murder of John Jarvey and an accomplice in the 2004, November 2004 murders of Tom and Jackie Hawks. We'll talk about the events leading up to November 15, 2004, the missing persons investigation, the murder investigation, and Henderson's 2006 trial and conviction. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing tonight? Pretty well. We have some storms. Um that moved through yeah, here today. Stop. They're still moving through. Um, so if you hear any expletives from me, <laughs> just know Fingers that crossed. the situation has deteriorated or I've lost power. Fingers and I'm, I'm in a very, very dark out. room. <laughs> right. Fingers crossed we maintain power and everything goes well and we have a nice smooth show tonight. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully hopefully we can. The storm is just one of those ones that it waxes and wanes. You think it's going, it's winding down, and then it'll start rumbling and lightning will start and you'll hear a crack and it's like it's not done yet. Right, right. 
So, so yeah, we have an interesting case tonight. Uh, people may have seen uh, recently ABC's 2020 covered the case. Um, I, we talked about it kind of briefly with uh, Caitlin Rother a few weeks ago when we talked to her about uh, uh, Nanette Packard and Eric Naposky. Um Caitlin Rother wrote a great true crime book about this case called Dead Reckoning. I would highly recommend it. Um, there's a second book that I also had read um, called Vanished at Sea, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. And the author is, I believe, Tina Derman. I'm not sure of her name. It's also another good book um, mm-hmm. about the case. And, okay. um, you know, one of the things that I like about Caitlin Rother is she tends to focus on background for everybody, the, uh, the detectives, the victims, the perpetrators, everybody. So there's a wealth of information in Dead Reckoning about uh, Tom and Jackie Hawks, their kids, their sons, you know, all that. So uh, I would highly recommend Dead Reckoning. And maybe someday okay. Caitlin will come back and we can interview about the book. Absolutely. That'll be a lot of, but, uh, uh, a lot of fun. Yes, yeah, she's preparing for the launch of uh, her death on Ocean Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Look at the Rebecca Zahau case and the Coronado Mansion death. Um, and so her schedule did not permit her to join us again tonight. Um, yeah. So we will be talking to her. You and I will be talking to her in a recorded interview that will air on May 5th. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, next Wednesday, March 31st. Don't forget to mark your calendar. Right. I can't wait for that. Okay. All right. So uh, let's start with this case. Um, first person we're going to talk about is Thomas Charles Hawks. He is one of the victims in the case. He was born in California in 1947. He grew up in California. He was a surfer. He served in Vietnam in the Air Force. He was a military policeman. When he came back to the States, he became a firefighter. He got married, and he had two sons, Matt and Ryan. Um, Mm -hmm. And when Matt and Ryan were younger, he and his first wife divorced. They had an amicable divorce, and Tom had custody of Matt and Ryan. He moved the family to Arizona. Um, okay. You know, he may have the lifestyle, the the boats, the lakes, the, uh, you know, the mountains. He may have wanted that lifestyle for, for his sons. And he started in a bar. He opened a bar or bought into mm-hmm. a bar. Um, and one of the things with Thomas, uh, Tom, he was a very hard worker and he lived within or beneath his means. 
So he didn't have the fanciest house. He didn't have the fanciest cars. Right. Um, but he, you know, he he was frugal with his money, and he worked very hard to earn everything he had. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, he met Jackie Ellen O'Neill. Um, Jackie had been born in Ohio in 1957. Um, she had two sisters, so she and I kind of share that. I don't know where she was in the family, whether she was the oldest or middle or youngest. But mm-hmm. um, her first marriage, uh, unfortunately, she and her husband were involved in a, a very serious motorcycle accident. And her Ooh. first husband died, and she sustained very serious injuries that took her a long time to recover from. Um, She lost her husband. She lost her ability to have children. She Mm -hmm. had injuries to both legs, knees. Uh, In fact, I think her left leg was shorter than her right leg as a result of the injuries she sustained. Um, Tom and Jackie were like, the key in the lock. One hmm. didn't work without the other. And everything from the time they met and started dating until they got married. And, you know, it's a backyard wedding attended by, some have described hundreds of friends and family. Uh-huh. Um, and she was a very loving stepmother to Matt and Ryan. Even though their mother was still alive, they considered her their second mother. Um, they had a very, a very good, very happy life in Arizona. Um, Tom and Jackie worked. They made investments. At some point, Tom became a probation officer with a county in Arizona that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I'm, I'm not. They were in the Prescott, Arizona area. So, um, and Tom and Jackie lived near Matt and his family or his wife. And then Tom worked as a probation officer. And then in 2001, he was able to retire, and he was only in his 50s. And that mm-hmm. had been their dream. And they had, you know, they lived accordingly. They worked hard. They saved money. They lived within their means or beneath their means and were frugal. And that enabled them to purchase a 55-foot yacht, kind of a trawler. It's described as a trawler, but it's like a fishing. It's it's like a a deep-sea fishing vessel. Right. You know, that you could take people out on fishing excursions. They named it the Well-Deserved. And so beginning around 2001, 2002, they began living a cruising life, which took them up and down the California coast and down to Mexico. And I believe they, they used to spend time in San Carlos, Mexico. Um, They did that for about two years. They refurbished the boat, um, 
even before they started sailing on it, they redid the interiors, uh, did beautiful work on the interiors. Tom put in, you know, the best and the latest navigational equipment, communications equipment, everything to, you know, bring the boat up a couple notches from what they purchased. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And again, you know, he's able to do that because he has worked very hard his entire life and saved Uh the money to be able to do that. Um, He's not conning people out of money. He's not doing anything illicit. You know, he's, he's spending his own hard-earned money. Around 2004, Matt's wife gave birth to their, to her first child named Jace, a young, a little boy. And so Tom and Jackie became grandma and grandpa Hawks and they were over the moon thrilled. And shortly after Jace's birth, they decided that they were going to sell the yacht and move back to Arizona so that they could be close to Matt and his wife and be close to Ryan and, and the family he would eventually have. So that's, you know, that's where, where they, basically that's the point at which their lives turn inevitably to tragedy. Right. Uh, and the right. person who engineered that tragedy is Skylar Julius DeLeon. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll bring it up now. It's later in the outline, but okay, we'll bring it up now. Skylar DeLeon claims to be transgender, claims right. to have a desire to become a woman. He has filed paperwork in California to change his name to Skylar Preciosa de Leon and to be declared a woman by the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, only with respect to Skylar, I do not find that to be genuine. I do not believe it to be genuine. I think it's some angle that he has because he doesn't want to spend the rest of his life with men. So he's figured out an angle to get himself into women's prison. And that's to become one. Um, And so I do not find it to be genuine and therefore only with respect to Skylar DeLeon, I am not going to refer to him as anything but him. Um, And again, it's only related to his experience and the fact that he is a con man. He's been lying his entire life to people. He's been manipulating people his entire life. How can you possibly, possibly believe anything he says? Um, And we'll, we'll, We'll see some examples of that uh, as we discuss him. But uh, he had a younger brother. Um, His father was a criminal. His father was a drug dealer. His father was allegedly abusive, although I, I don't think there's a lot of 
corroboration of Skyler's self-serving statements. Mm-hmm. And frankly, from some sources, it appears that Skyler actually wanted to be not only like dear old dad, but to be worse than dear old dad, which he achieved. Right. Um, when Skylar was a young kid, his parents divorced. And, you know, one of the things that I, I had this reading, Dead Reckoning, if the father is such a monster, why would the wife leave the kids with the father when she got out of the marriage? I'm sorry. But I know, I don't have kids, but I know I would never have left my children. Mm -hmm. You know, if I had to kill him to get out, that is what I would have done. I would not leave and leave my kids. No way in hell. And I know, I mean, I I know my sister would have never done that. My niece would not do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they would they would get out with the children, and and he would never know where the children were. So I don't understand if he's so horrible. Why why would she leave her two children with him? And then a lot of the claims about the abuse that Skyler experienced with his dad is his self serving statements, and there's no corroboration. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no corroboration of a single intervention by Department of Children and Families. And some of the things Scholar describes, Department of Children and Families would have gotten involved. Right. Um, And again, you have to consider that when his father went to prison, uh, there was a period of time where the father was in prison, and so Scholar was living with a grandmother or his mother and, and a stepfather, and he was a bit of a problem child, and he was known to tell wild stories. And he had that, you know, he had that reputation in his family, even as a kid. Of course, they probably thought, oh, it's just creative, creativity. Um, but, uh, but he had a period of time where he was with people who loved him very, very much. Um, and then we have the allegations about an acting career. He claims to have been an extra on the pro- on the 1990s show Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And really? authors even tell stories about stories that Skyler told them about his father abusing him and berating him when he couldn't remember his lines. However, other sources who have gone to production for Mighty Morphin Power Rangers find no evidence of a John Jacobson, John Julius Jacobson, Skylar DeLeon, or any variation ever having been appearing. Um, I think there's a there are, are screen caps of a little boy that's Supposedly, Skyler. Mm-hmm. 
but I don't see it. And you know, like I said, unless unless he can produce a SAG card that proves he was a child actor, I think the right. child actor is just another invention of his. Because one thing I can say with absolute certainty is Skyler, John, JJ, Johnny, whatever the fuck he was, whoever the fuck he was, he didn't want to be <laughs> right. that person. Uh-huh. So, um, and I'm not even sure, I can't even find any corroboration that he actually legally changed his name from John Jacobson to Skyler DeLeon. Um, mm-hmm. You can presume that's the case because that's how he was charged. But he, mm-hmm. all of his identification as Skylar DeLeon could be fake because he was a con artist. Um, then when he was about 18, he joined the Marine Corps. And allegedly that's, you know, that corroborates the whole transgender stuff because it's it's an uh an example of him trying to be macho. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe not. I mean, but he only lasted 14 months and then he went UA. And then he mm-hmm. had another than honorable discharge. Cuz he joined at a time when uh you know, they weren't giving out dishonorable discharges. And he probably had some good story about going UA. And so they let him out. But he even, he got tattoos that he didn't have any business having. He told stories about being in a, a strike force, which is like Marine, elite of elite in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talked about being, uh, you know, doing things in the Marine Corps that he never did, that he never qualified for. Um, he got Navy SEAL tattoos, which he had no business having because that's a fucking Navy asshole. You know, that <laughs> he has no, you know, he has no business having because he did not achieve those positions. In the military. Um, so, you know, again, and, and perhaps that's why I'm a little, uh, I, I'm a little anti-Skyler because I have a father who served in the Coast Guard, an uncle who served in the Marines, a cousin who served in the Army, uh, another uncle who was in the Air Force another cousin who was in the Navy, and then joined the Army National Guard when she left the Navy. And they all made a sacrifice for many years to serve their country. They didn't do it for 14 months and get tired of it and walk away. So... um, and again, as I said, I, I don't find I think the I think the transgender is a scam because he doesn't want to spend the rest of his life in a men's prison surrounded by men. Right. Uh he wants to spend and maybe that's because he can fool women 
a lot easier than he fools men. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have his wife, Jennifer Henderson, and I don't know what the fuck happened to this girl because by all accounts, she had a middle or upper middle class family life in Long Beach, California. She played sports. She was on a college um, was it college soccer or college softball team. She had a religious mm-hmm. family. They attended church. She'd become a hairdresser. She met DeLeon online, and they started dating, and very quickly it became serious, and they got married. Mm-hmm. And uh, she got pregnant very quickly, and so they had their first child. Now, Skylar and Jennifer didn't have a pot to piss in, literally. Right. They were living in her parents' garage. They had massive debt, probably because they had a big wedding that they couldn't afford. They were borrowing money from her family, from his family, and promising to pay him back. Uh, Scholar DeLeon was always telling stories to people about um, acting uh, royalties and investments and uh, all these sources of money that were just tied up right now, and, and they just needed a little bit to tie them over. But they never, like I said, they never had, they never ever had anything. Right. And when they'd get it, they'd piss it away. And in around 2000, late 2002, DeLeon commits an armed burglary. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer gives her dad a story about how he didn't really do anything wrong. Uh, he was taking the fall for somebody else, and so she gets her father to pay for DeLeon's incarceration because DeLeon was going to go to the private jail at Seal Beach and kind of go, you have to stay there at night, but during the day you can go to work, although he didn't really have a job. He worked for a mortgage company, got fired, probably for Kana people. Um, and uh, so that was where he was in 2003, he was serving time in that in that Seal Beach jail. Um and I have Jennifer's second pregnancy, but she actually got pregnant after John Jarvie. Um, so in 2003, while DeLeon's serving time in Seal Beach, he meets a guy named John Jarvie. And John Jarvie's kind of a ne'er-do-well as well. Um, DeLeon starts talking to him about an investment. And so Jarvie falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. Another person that DeLeon meets is a guard at the Seal Beach Shale by the name of Alonzo Machine. Um, so DeLeon works on Jarvie and gets Jarvie to believe that this investment is a you know sure thing. And so Jarvie refinances his condo cashes two $25 cashier's checks 
and gives to Leon $50,000. And then I guess he starts wondering about the investment, wanting to know more information about the investment. So DeLeon takes Jarvie and and Mike Lewis, who is his cousin, down to Ensenada because that's where the investment supposedly is. Um, Several hours later, DeLeon and Mike Lewis cross the border and a few hours after that, John Jarvie's body is found on the side of the road with his throat slit. So three people go down to Mexico, but only two of them come back. And the third one is found dead in Mexico. Not really a big whodunit for me. You still there, Michael? Darn it, I muted myself. Yes, I'm still here. Okay. <laughs> I, you I know, with what's going on, there's no telling tonight. <laughs> very true, very so, true. Um, now, after this happens, um, Jennifer Henderson contacts Mike Lewis and tells him he has to lie about that trip to Mexico because DeLeon was supposed to be uh, serving time for that burglary, and he can't be going down to Mexico. So she tells Lewis to say that the two of them went to Mexico because she wanted her favorite ice cream. Right. And shortly thereafter, DeLeon spends $18,000 at a boatyard. He buys a around $2,000 wedding ring for Henderson, and he deposits $20,000 in the couple's joint checking account. So the $50,000 investment that John Jarvie made was in Schuyler de Leon and Jennifer Henderson de Leon. Um, so that he is con. And if Jarvie had not, Jarvie was probably bugging him to know what this was about or to see it for himself. Or maybe somebody was like, you just gave him $50,000. You met him in jail. That was really stupid. Um, So uh, any number of things could have happened, but uh, unfortunately, Jarvie said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, and DeLeon killed him. Um, So then... Again, Jennifer got pregnant at some point in 2004. She was heavily pregnant by the time October, November 2004, roll around. Um, and that, at that point, you know, they're still, their bank accounts are overdrawn. She's the sole breadwinner because he don't have a job. Um, they're living in that garage And I was really sad. If you watch any of the news magazine programs, 48 Hours or 2020, I mean, it was really sad. They were living in a garage. They didn't have a bathroom or a kitchen. They had to go in the main house for that. Um, And it was probably, it looked like a one-car garage, not a a two- or three-car garage. 
Um, it wasn't even the kind of garage that could be converted into a nice little apartment. So in October and November, DeLeon sees the ad for the well-deserved for sale. And he, Alonzo Machain, to help him. He tells Alonzo Machain that he has a contract to kill Tom Hawks. That Tom Hawks was a probation officer, he screwed somebody over, and so, you know, DeLeon's going to kill him, and they're going to take all his stuff. Um, and this is another thing that pisses me off about DeLeon, is that he can't even let his victims have a little bit of dignity and he has to make up lies about them and make them the bad guy. And so in exchange for his help, Machane is offered millions of dollars by Skylar DeLeon that are never gonna are never gonna come about. Another another thing somebody commented about DeLeon was that he would make these plans and then he would change the plan without ever telling anybody. So I guess his other accomplices and other other schemes, you know, that was a bit annoying about him. So on November 6, 2004, uh, DeLeon and Machain go to the well-deserved, and that the plan that day was to overpower Tom and Jackie, get them to sign the paperwork they need to sign, and then kill them. When he realizes that Tom's bigger than he is and that they're not going to be able to overpower him, let alone Jackie, he decides they're not going to do anything that day. So he contacts Jennifer and tells her they're, you know, they're kind of, they're, they're kind of cagey. I think they didn't think he was a legitimate buyer. And so they were kind of standoffish. So on November 9th, DeLeon, Henderson, and their daughter visit Tom and Jackie on the well-deserved. And the purpose of that visit was to put them at ease and to make DeLeon seem like a legitimate buyer. Still there? Yes, ma'am. I'm still here. Okay. <laughs> I told you I was going to try to lay back I, a little bit unless I had questions. I, well, with the storms, I just worry that I'm getting cut, that I'm going to get cut off. No, no. I'll let you know if you get cut off. Trust me. Well, how am I going to know if I'm cut off? Oh, good point. You wouldn't be able to get a Facebook message. <laughs> good point. No, you're fine. I'm still so, You haven't even missed a beat. Okay. So um, on November 14th, apparently the plan had changed. Not only was Skylar DeLeon going to take the well-deserved and any money that and, and property that uh, Tom and Jackie had on the vessel, he was also going to get control of all of their financial uh, holdings and assets. So he was away. Uh, and, and I'm not, it's not quite clear, or I don't quite really remember what he was doing. 
maybe he and McChain were off buying stun guns and handcuffs. And um, on the phone, he had Henderson at their home computer creating powers of attorney. And there were multiple calls between DeLeon and Henderson. The computer shows when the power of attorney was created, when it was edited. Um, DeLeon's also trying to recruit additional muscle. Because Tom was a bodybuilder, and even though he was only about 5'8", he was very powerfully built. And even in his 50s, or he was probably in his 60s by then, um, he still, you know, was pretty formidable. He still worked out. He was a bodybuilder, very fit. So uh, he tries to recruit another prisoner that he had met in his travels named Marvin Gardner, who was a member of the Insane Crips. But Gardner really didn't seem to trust DeLeon all that much and didn't really want to get involved. But he suggested his good friend and fellow Insane Crip gang member, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who was known as CJ, which was short for Crazy John. And CJ was a big, okay, big that dude. that name cannot be – I need a little bit more research on the name. That is his name. You say John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and I automatically think of President Kennedy. So that there has to be is his – well, it, it more likely than not is that John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy did a lot of work toward equal rights, civil rights. Right, right. Up to Kennedy's assassination. And then Mm -hmm. Robert Kennedy continued the work uh, through his time at the Justice Department, and then um, he would have continued it had he not been assassinated while he was running. And the Kennedy brothers are... Um, are are generally quite revered, right? Absolutely. Uh, because of their work on the civil rights movement, I had a an attorney that I worked with in Memphis, and he had pictures of the Kennedys in his office. Right. I had a friend whose mother had pictures of the Kennedys in her house. And the pictures had pride of place in her house. So um, that is, you know, they were human and they weren't perfect, but they at least some of the time did try to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. So um, there's that, but that's probably, and that's probably why he was named John Fitzgerald. Um, Okay. I think he's about my age, so he may have been born at or around the time President Kennedy was assassinated. Mm -hmm. Let me see. Um, Let's have a pause. I'm sorry, I know I got us off on a tangent, but uh, yeah, no, I, I am. I am glad. I, 
I wish I had thought of it or given you his name and said, here, go wild. Um, right. So let me see. I'm pulling up the uh, inmate locator for uh, for California. And let's see. Kennedy John Fitzgerald. By the way, do you know what the addition of the name Fitz used to mean? What's that? It meant you were illegitimate. Huh. So he is 55. So he was probably born around 1965. True, right after Um, it happened. Yeah. He will about two years later. Um, right. Still enough that still enough that it would have uh that it would have probably yeah. been just just oh crap. Such an amazing guy. I wanna name my kid after him. Yeah, exactly. Um let's see, he was forty three in two thousand eight. Um so yeah, I, I'm thinking he was born between 63 and 65. I'm not. I, I'm not really sure, and I'm horrible at math. Uh-huh. So oh, wait, um, hold on. Let me let me pull out the handy dandy calculator here. I'm on a computer for crying out loud. Uh, 2020 yeah. 20 minus 55, 1965. Okay. Yeah, they don't have a date of birth. Or a year. So, yeah, so it looks um, like he's and, 55, it's 1965. Yeah. Which is unusual because in, um, usually in Department of Corrections, they they show a date of birth. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, so that's, yeah, that's segue. So he was born, yeah, and he, he was born between 63 and 65. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the California record could say 55, but that could be back from back in 2019. Right. You know, so, um, but, so that's, they, he recruits him, promises, again, so Leon's promising millions of dollars and telling this story about Tom Hawks being a bad guy and deserving to be killed. Of course, mm-hmm. nobody bothers, well, what about the wife? Does she really deserve to be killed, too? Um, but they fell for it. And so on the 15th of November, 2004, DeLeon, Kennedy, and McChain arrived at the well-deserved, which was docked, I believe, at the uh, – it wasn't, it wasn't out in the channel. It was docked. And they leave Newport Harbor. Kennedy's posing as uh, DeLeon's accountant, which I find a bit far-fetched. McChain um, is there. And DeLeon is there posing as the former child actor buyer. They leave Newport Harbor for the sea trial. 
Uh, once they're out to sea, no other boats around, Kennedy overpowers Tom, handcuffs him, McChain overpowers Jackie. They bring them to the stateroom. They handcuff them. Uh, Jackie is very... She's crying. She's asking, why are you doing this? Um, you know, she's very emotional. Can't blame her because she's, you know, she feels like they became friends and now he's betraying them. And Tom does his best to comfort Jackie, but the most he could do is stroke her hand. Mm-hmm. And then one at a time, Tom and Jackie are taken to be where they're forced to sign sale documents and powers of attorney. Right. Once those documents are signed, they're taken out on deck. And I believe while uh, DeLeon was trying to tie up Tom and Jackie... Tom was able to mule kick DeLeon and knocking him, knock him into some chairs. And I hope it really, really, really hurt when that happened. All right. Uh, of course, unfortunately, Kennedy was there. Kennedy hit Tom in the head and stunned him. Tom and Jackie were tied together and tied to the anchor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackie was... Again, very emotional, begging for their lives, uh, because all she wanted to do was live and and be with her grandson. Mm-hmm. And then DeLeon threw the anchor off the side, and according to Alonzo McChain, he smirked or smiled as Tom and Jackie were dragged across the deck and overboard into the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. Okay. And I'm going to say this right now. DeLeon is going to, when he eventually meets his maker, he's going to burn in hell just for that. Can't disagree with that. Um, you know, if there's any any justice in the universe, that is that is what he faces when he beats his maker. Um, and then DeLeon, Kennedy, and McChain return to the Newport Harbor. Uh, they dock the boat, and um, the next day, Henderson recruits her father to help clean the well-deserved, and even sends her dad to uh, Target to pick up the cleanup kit, which is trash bags, and bleach, and apparently Tom's, because either the pregnancy or knowing that her husband brutally murdered these two people, um, it was causing her a little tummy trouble. (laughs) And um, then DeLeon and Henderson trash some of Tom and Jackie's possession and decide to keep some of their possessions from the boat. They leave a lot of stuff on the boat, and they leave the boat in disarray. And they leave the boat 
and the dinghy not properly secured. And right. uh, so going to come into play later. Um, then a friend of theirs or a friend of De Leon's or another criminal low life of De Leon's recommends a notary. They take all the paperwork to a notary. They bribe the notary and they get the notary to backdate the vessel sale documents and powers of attorney. And then De Leon okay. provides the notary with color copies of Tom and Jackie's um, or color photographs of Tom and Jackie's uh, licenses so that the notary can accurately describe them if ever questioned. <laughs> right. And then um, one of the things that, that I don't know if you've picked up on is that this really took an incredible amount of planning. And it took an incredible amount of study because he learned how to accomplish transfers of property, movable property, mm-hmm. in the state of California. You have, a, you have to have a bill of sale. It has to be notarized, and you have to record the documents. So they took the documents, and they recorded them. And Jennifer Henderson's right there beside him as he does these things. Okay, she's not some innocent little unwitting dupe who is has no idea what's going on. Okay, the, let's just get that. She knows he's killed before, and she knows Tom and Jackie Hawks went out on a sea trial on their yacht and never came back. Mm-hmm. Right. So. And she's right beside him recording the documents, going to the banks. Um, Hawk's family members become concerned because even though Tom and Jackie had been living a cruising life, they had kept in contact. You know, they talked to people. They talked to somebody in the family every every couple of days. They had satellite phones. They had email. You know, they had means of communication. And they they utilize those means of communication. So when they hadn't been heard from for a few days, and they had said that they had a buyer for the boat, the family becomes concerned. Well, Jim Hawk's brother is a former police chief in the same town where Tom had been a firefighter. So he comes, goes to the well-deserved, which is still docked in the Newport Harbor. And when he sees it, he knows something's not right. He knows Tom did not leave it like this. Because Tom would not leave it like that. Okay. So he leaves a note for the new buyer that, you know, I'm, I'm Tom's brother and we're trying to get in touch with him and we haven't heard from him. Please give me a call. We're concerned. So... In response to that note, he gets a call from Jennifer DeLeon. And um, she basically is answering his questions, but he gets a sense that somebody's feeding her the answers. Because Skylar don't have the balls to talk to him. Um, Which is ironic, considering that he's now trying to become a woman and get rid of his balls. 
completely. But um, at some point when Jim's questions get a little bit too probing, Jennifer says, I have a baby. I have to go and ends the call. Now, uh-huh. um, like I said, he's a former police chief. And the story that Jennifer and, and DeLeon were telling is that we completed the sale. We gave them the money. They got in their Honda CRV, and they drove away. And all we know is they were moving down to Mexico, which was a possibility, but according to all their recent statements, their plan was to move back to Arizona. So why would they suddenly decide to move to Mexico? Um, So that kind of concerns, and again, they wouldn't, if that, plan had changed, they would not have not contacted Matt or Ryan or Jim or any number of friends who, you know, would have gladly passed that information on to other people. They had somebody looking after their financial affairs. Why Mm -hmm. wouldn't they let her know? We changed our minds. We're not coming back to Arizona now. We're going to go live in Mexico um, Mexico is kind of weird, though, because non-citizens buying property in Mexico is complicated, from what I understand. And I think in some states in Mexico, if you're not a Mexican citizen, you cannot buy property. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of places in Mexico have the timeshares. And you don't really own it. <laughs> right. But true. Um, I, that's something, you know, I, that's my understanding from what I've heard. Um, mm-hmm. So DeLeon and Henderson, uh, timeline's kind of fuzzy. But at some point, they take the Hawks' silver CRV down to Ensenada, and they give it to a couple in Ensenada. Just give it to them. Um, they go to a branch of the Hawks' bank in Mexico and try to access their accounts, but the bank won't let them. Then they travel to Arizona and try to access account uh, access the bank accounts in Arizona, and that bank won't let them. And Jackie apparently had left the S off of Hawks. When she signed okay. the power of attorney. And basically what happened is they went to the bank in Arizona and they presented the powers of attorney and the, the bank manager didn't just thought something was not kosher about it. And so the bank manager was going to have to investigate before he could allow them access. Um, so... Uh, I don't think they managed to get everything. And, and it's ironic that that part of the scheme is really what undid the whole thing. So we'll, but we'll get to that later. Um, so another thing that Henderson did, they had, they had taken property from the vessel and one of those things was a VCO, a, a video camera owned by the Hawkses. 
And in that video camera was a tape with the Hawks' final travels on it. Right. And at some point, Jennifer Henderson recorded her family's Thanksgiving dinner on that very same tape in that video camera. And to me, that shows she knew exactly what was, she knew what was going to happen before it happened. She knew it had happened, and she didn't give a shit. She wanted a good life. She married a deadbeat con artist, idiot, who's like a criminal savant, because this is, like I said, is a pretty well-planned out and a well-researched, but he's not smart enough to pull it off and not okay. get caught. Um, right. At some point, apparently, another reason that the two of them are idiots is that they left the yacht sitting in the Newport Harbor. Apparently, they didn't know how to how to run it, how to operate it, and so they couldn't move it, and so they just left it there. And so when they tried to get the accounts in the bank with the powers of attorney, that gave police who were looking into the disappearance of Tom and Jackie Hawks enough to seize the yacht. Mm -hmm. And so when they seized it and they start looking at it for evidence, they find the target receipt. Mm-hmm. And because they don't know who the new buyers are yet. And when they find the Target receipt, they go to Target and they get video and they see a man on the video. And it turns out that the man on the video is Jennifer Henderson's father. Mm-hmm. So um, they, toward the end of, the, of November, uh, they go to... Dillion and Henderson, or they go to, they actually go to Henderson's father first, interview him. He says, oh, they're down the street cleaning a church. So the police go down the street, clean, pick up Dillion and Henderson, bring him in to interview him, put him in separate rooms. And of course the lying begins and the two idiots don't have their story straight. So, Jennifer DeLeon's worried about tax consequences, so she's undervaluing the amount of money that they had. Right. When in reality, they had zero. But she tells the cops they bought their yacht for $200,000, and they had it from royalties from her husband's acting career. DeLeon tells them over $400,000. And at first she tries to tell him it was proceeds from his acting career. And then he tells them it was because he took the fall for somebody and they paid him back. And then finally he's like, okay, look, I got to tell you the truth. I'm going to finally tell you the truth. I was laundering proceeds from the 2002 burglary that I got arrested and convicted for. 
And this really kind of disarms and charms the police a little bit for a minute because he's admitting to committing a crime after lying to him. But um, they didn't. He and Jennifer both deny the knowledge of the whereabouts. And DeLeon tells a story about how he he brought four hundred thousand dollars in a briefcase, hundred dollar bills. It was drug money. It was proceeds from a burglary, whatever it was. And he describes this scene out of a fucking movie. Mm-hmm. And you only see it happen this way in a movie where he takes the suitcase out and he opens it up and shows it to Tom Hawks. And Tom Hawks says, is it all there? And DeLeon says, yep. And then Tom's like, okay, well, maybe we better close it now. And, you know, so the they close the suitcase. And then he claims. If, the only thing that would make it better is if it was a brown paper sack. Yeah. No, no, it was a, a little briefcase. Uh, a briefcase. Um, so, uh, which you probably don't even know what that is because men don't carry them anymore. Um, so their, their story and they stick to it is that they last saw Tom and Jackie Hawks drive away in their CIRV with $465,000 in cash. Now, Matt and Ryan don't believe this. Okay. Um, they absolutely do not believe that their dad would take $465 cash in a briefcase in a parking lot at a marina. Okay. So, um, you know, and it is kind of, it, it is kind of weird that this whole transaction, including signing of all the, the documents, occurred in that very same parking lot on the trunk of DeLeon's car. That's the story he's telling police. Um, So the cops know about the bank, and they know about the powers of attorney. So that's when they kind of say, okay, well, that's the whole yacht thing's one thing, but how do you explain this? Explain to me why you have power of attorney for their accounts. Because they don't know you, you from Adam. Well, that's when DeLeon started saying he was trying to, he was going to help them buy property in Mexico because he has dual citizenship. And so he's going to buy property. Now, now that makes no sense because if you're going to give them $465,000 in cash, why don't you just go down to Mexico, buy a house, and then sign it over to them? And then it's like a trade, yacht for the house in Mexico. So the cops don't buy that. Um, they interview Machine, and initially he was consistent with DeLeon, but then he kind of lost his nerve and or just wasn't as smooth a liar as DeLeon is. And... Um, then the office, the, the detectives got copies of the documents and started scrutinizing them. And then they questioned the notary. And it was kind of the notary that eventually folded like a cheap suit. And in exchange for immunity, told everything she knew. 
and basically was that Henderson and DeLeon bribed her to backdate the documents. She never saw Jackie Hawks and Tom Hawks. Uh, she wasn't in Newport Beach on the 15th of November, and um, she did not witness any of the documents being signed. And so the police are still investigating. I think they arrested DeLeon on uh, the money laundering admission because he's a convicted felon, and I think he was on probation or parole at the time. So they had grounds to arrest him and hold him, if not indefinitely, at least for a little while, and continue investigating. On December 16, 2004, the CRV is found in Mexico, and DeLeon and Henderson are linked to the CRV. And I think there was even a witness who had, and I think the people that they gave it to said, yeah, Jennifer DeLeon and and Skylar DeLeon gave us this vehicle. And I think there were witnesses that put him driving the vehicle. So um, at some point, Machane fled to Mexico because he knew the jig was up. And in March of 2005, or was about to be up, he had a conscience, and he decided to do the right thing. He voluntarily returned to the United States. He confessed. He was an eyewitness to the murders. Uh, He described everything that happened, and he was arrested. DeLeon was arrested. He initially denied guilt. Um, and he actually speculated to different people that the Hawks were killed as part of a drug deal gone bad. He tried to say that his father was the real killer and that it all happened in a drug deal gone bad with his father. Um While he was in jail, Henderson visited him as often as she could. Um, The DA spoke to her several times, and she was offered immunity several times, and each time she refused. Now, part of that may have been cockiness, thinking, I didn't kill anybody, and I have no control over what my husband did. So they can't charge me. And that's a mistake a lot of people, especially young, immature, greedy little bitches, make. They think if you don't actually cause a death, nobody can touch you. They think if you weren't there, nobody can touch you. And that just isn't so. So... Um, But another part of it may have been that she was so in love with him, and he was professing his love for her. And eventually they were able to develop enough evidence to arrest Jennifer Henderson, or DeLeon at the time. Um, And she remained loyal to, to DeLeon for a while. 
Um, she even got angry because her parents refused to take their children to visit Leon in jail. Uh-huh. Uh, pre-trial, uh, there was a joint preliminary hearing, and I think at some point DeLeon actually had the balls to cry, but he was crying for himself, uh-huh. not course. for what he'd done and not for not out of remorse, but for the fact that he knows, you know, he's going to prison at least, and he's facing the death penalty. At some point, the DA did make the decision not to seek death for Henderson. And I think part of that is because she wasn't physically present on the boat. Mm -hmm. And even though she knew, and even though she could have stopped it by contacting Tom and Jackie Hawks and warning them and saying, look, he's not legitimate, get as far away from him, leave now, go back to Arizona, Go back to Mexico. Go go moor your boat on Catalina. Get out of Newport. Uh, because he would have had to start from square one if, uh-huh. if she'd done that. Um, so, But he made the decision not to seek death for her. Um, she went to trial first, probably because it was not a death penalty case. Uh, the prosecution had a lot of evidence. They had the money problems that they they had had since the day they were married. Uh, they had record of the cell phone and text communications between uh, Jennifer and DeLeon, both in 2003 when John Jarvie was murdered and in 2004 leading up to and during the murders of Tom and Jackie Hawks. Um, the chain testified, and I think he was pretty much unshakable. He had not entered a plea at that time, and I believe he still faced the death penalty. So he had no deals or no, you know, he had a hope for leniency but no guarantee at that point. Uh, they had the computer history because... Jennifer's the one who created the powers of attorney and probably the sale documents, the bill of sale documents for the boat. And uh, she had also made statements to their accountant and realtors about them coming into a lot of money from two, bo- you know, from two boats and the sale of two boats and money that his family owed him and, you know, She's entitled little bitch, basically. Uh, and she, you know, married a deadbeat lowlife. And so whatever it takes for her to have what she wants is okay. And then they also had evidence of her role in the Jarvie murder after the fact, which kind of showed that she wasn't an innocent bystander who had no control that she knew and she, you know, she enjoyed the money, the Jarvie money while it lasted. So um, her Mm -hmm. defense was more or less, it was all to Leon. She didn't do anything. She didn't want to do anything. She didn't plan anything that she was conned and duped. 
uh, by DeLeon into doing it, and it was all his fault. The jury found her guilty of first-degree murder, two counts, on November 17, 2006, which was two years and two days after the murders of Tom and Jackie Hawks. They also found the special circumstances allegation of murder for financial gain to be true. Uh, they charged her as well with a special circumstance of multiple murder, but it's not really clear whether they found that one to be true or not. Technically, it's true, but she didn't physically cause the death and wasn't present when they died or when their deaths were caused. Mm -hmm. So they may have found that not to be applicable. And um, she was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. It's not clear whether they're concurrent or consecutive sentences. Mm -hmm. She went to direct appeal at the 4th District Court of Appeal, Division 3, I think it is, uh, in Southern California. Her direct appeal was decided July 17, 2009. Basically, she complained about the omission of the evidence of the Jarvie murder. And the court found that, you know, the purpose that it was admitted was to show her knowledge of the circumstances and facts of what happened to show that, you know, she wasn't just an innocent bystander. She was a participant. She helped after the fact by encouraging Mike Lewis to lie. And also, while they're in jail, I, I can't talk about it too, too much because I, I, I'm not talking about the Leon's trial. He apparently tried to arrange to have someone murder his father and his cousin Mike Lewis because he felt both of them would be devastating witnesses against him. Um, so she, uh, that, and they found that that was admissible and she wasn't prejudiced by its admission. It was admissible. It was more probative than prejudicial. Um, and then she also complained about the jury instructions given by the court, uh, that the court jury instructions were insufficient to, tell the jury how to evaluate the Jarvie evidence, that the court uh-huh. failed to instruct the jury on elements of accessory after the fact, and that the instructions given lowered the burden of proof for the prosecutor. And the appellate court found that none of these claims had any merit, um, that uh, you know the, she wasn't being charged as an accessory after the fact in Jarvie's murder. So there was no need for the court to instruct the jury on accessory after the fact. Um, that you know the the instructions given were in plain language and the jury could understand them, and her complaints just didn't have any merit. Then she also alleged prosecutorial misconduct related to prosecutor's closing argument, where he talked about Henderson's knowledge prior to the murders of Tom and Jackie Hawks, and Basically, she waived that um, 
issue because her counsel failed to object to the statements at the time they were made during closing. And um, she tried to allege an effective assistance of counsel for the failure to object, but the court found that had no merit either. Um, she also raised an issue regarding the fact that there were two mistrial motions at which she was not present. However, the court found that her counsel waived her presence, meaning her counsel went into chambers and didn't bring her in. And mistrial motions are not the type of proceeding at which the accused presence is mandated by the Sixth Amendment. Because okay. it's a motion on a legal issue that is solely within the province of the attorney. Hmm. Okay. It's not it, it's not testimony of witnesses. It's not picking a jury. It's not opening argument. It's not closing argument. It's not rebuttal. You know, it's it's a it's an administrative thing. You'll still see in criminal cases, you'll still see defendants present at those types of things, but you don't see a defendant go up to the bench during a bench conference at trial. Unless the defendant is representing himself or herself. Sure. And a motion for a mistrial is kind of is actually kind of along the lines of a bench conference or more similar to a bench conference than it would be to a proceeding in trial at which the defendant needs to be present. Um, she also argued cumulative error, but with cumulative error, if there isn't an error, you know, if the multiple issues raised are not found to be error, then there is no cumulative error. <laughs> Right. Um, you know, like, and that's kind of the argument made is that um, individually the errors aren't enough, but together they're fatal to the the prosecution's case. And that's, you know, if they don't find something to be error, then you can't have a cumulative error. Um, she also argued about uh, possession of a jury instruction that said possession a stolen property can be used as evidence of a crime. And the court actually did find that that was error, that particular instruction. However, okay. they found it was harmless in light of the overwhelming evidence against Henderson, that that erroneous instruction had no impact on the jury's decision to convict. Uh, and then she argued about the special circumstances and the sufficiency of the evidence supporting the special circumstances, and they found that that also lacked merit. Um, she finally raised an issue. She was charged a restitution fine of $20,000. And the court found that the maximum fine was 10000 by statute, what the judge had done was basically charged her the maximum on each count, when in reality, mm -hmm. the most he could charge her for restitution was $10,000. Okay. 
okay. So they affirmed her conviction and sentence. Yeah, that's, that, that, that yeah. definitely seems like a uh, weak win. Well, I mean, she didn't have, uh, yeah, she didn't have $10,000 either. So uh, unless her right. parents paid it for her, I don't know, you know. Um, so then she went on to state post-conviction. However, in California, and this is why we see stuff like Scott Peterson's writ of habeas corpus going on at the same time his direct appeal is still going on. And that is because in California, um, a post-conviction application is presumed timely if it's filed within 180 days after the final due date for filing of appellant's reply brief on direct appeal. And that is because most of the issues raised in post-conviction are issues either known about or actually raised on direct appeal. Mm-hmm. And so there's no reason for somebody to wait two years or 18 months after their direct appeal is decided to file their state post-conviction. And I had wondered why in a lot of cases in California you were seeing both the direct appeal and the writ of habeas corpus proceeding the state writ of habeas corpus proceeding at the same time. And that was because of the timeliness rule. Mm -hmm. So um, she filed her writ January 14, 2011. And that was 18 months after her direct appeal was decided. And so the state court found that her state post-conviction was not timely. Mm-hmm. And they dismissed it. However, apparently the state post-conviction court also denied the issues on the merits. Okay. Or denied some of the issues on the merits. I could not get a copy of the state post-conviction opinion um, I, because we probably will talk about this case again, and we'll we'll definitely talk about DeLeon and Kennedy once their state direct appeals conclude. In fact, we'll probably make this case a two-part episode. Um, I will probably write to the state court in California and try to, to get a copy of the state court opinion on her first direct appeal. I mean, first post-conviction claim. Um, And so we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, next time we talk about the case. Okay. So then uh, she went on, and she appealed this to the 4th District Court of Appeal, and the the appeal was summarily dismissed. Um, And again, there's more records that I need to get from the state of California to talk about this a little bit, this issue a little bit more um, expansively. 
So then she moved on to federal court, and she actually filed her first federal habeas corpus action January 24, 2011, presuming she filed it, was filing it within 18 months of her direct appeal to be timely under the federal rules under EDPA. However, her state court was still going on, and you can't do that. And so on January 31st, 2011, her first habeas corpus action in federal court was dismissed on summary, uh, was summarily dismissed by the, the district court judge because she had state court challenges pending. And I think the day his summary dismissal came out is the day that the California court dismissed her claims. So January 31st, 2011 was a bad day for Jennifer Henderson. So that decision was appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And on December 13, 2012, they reversed and remanded. So her case went back to district court. And the, not only was the first action remanded, but then she filed a second habeas corpus action requiring the district court to consolidate the two actions and go from there. Um, she raised a total of 18 claims. I don't know what all of them are because I didn't download her petition or her amended petitions, but the majority of the claims were not raised in direct appeal or her initial state post-conviction claim, and that means they're procedurally defaulted and she can't raise them in federal court because she didn't raise them to the state court and she didn't give the state court an opportunity to review and and remedy the errors. Um, and the most of the rest of the errors show the same one she raised on direct appeal, um, the jury instructions about possession of stolen property, and the federal court found, you know, the state court was right. It it wasn't, it was erroneous, but it was harmless in light of the overwhelming evidence against her in the case. And so it didn't mm-hmm. impact the jury's decision. Um, they also found that the, the evidence related to the Jarvie murder was not improperly admitted by the trial court and that the prosecutor did not commit misconduct during his closing arguments. That she was, you know, basically she and her attorneys are taking an isolated phrase here and there and not looking at the statements in context. And we're seeing a lot of that in the criminal defense arena, especially post-conviction. They'll take one sentence of a witness on the stand and go to town on that and ignore everything else the witness said. And we see that a lot. You know, we see it like in the Rodney Reed case. 
uh, Curtis Davis, you know, they take Curtis Davis and they say, oh, Curtis Davis said Jimmy Finnell was out drinking that night. And they also ignore the fact that Curtis Davis also said Jimmy Finnell would not have strangled Stacy with a belt. That he would not have helped Jimmy Finnell cover up Stacy's death if that was what happened and if, if Finnell asked him to. Um, and that's kind of the same thing. Uh, it's something my friend Sean used to call stupid attorney tricks. Mm-hmm. So, um, so uh, Jennifer filed another, I think, state habeas corpus action in 2017, and that was pretty much summarily dismissed and um, appealed, and she was not successful. Uh, because I don't know what she raised, and the dockets don't provide any illumination on that topic, uh, I'm not gonna try and say what what she said or what she yeah, what I she raised or what evidence she allegedly found. Yeah, and right. she also has filed another state court action, which is on appeal at the um, fourth district. That was filed September of 2020. And uh, the case has been fully briefed. Her attorney has requested oral argument, but they haven't set a date for that yet. So um, I will keep an eye on the docket to see when that is ordered. And um, if they order oral argument, I will, of course listen to it or watch okay. it. And um and then I think we're pretty we're almost done. But uh one of the things I found in an article that I found is that um the article referred to an incident in March of two thousand eight where Skyler used a dull razor to try and sever his penis. Mm-hmm. Guard stopped him before he could do much damage. Although apparently he did have to wear a diaper for some period of time. Um, make of that what you will. And this uh, this author was interviewing him in jail after he'd been convicted, and. Uh, his explanation was, when I look down there, I don't like what I see. I can't explain it. When asked if he was gay, um, he said, no, I've just always gotten along better with girls, and I thought if I cut it off, I'd go to the girls' side of the jail. You know, if I have to be with one sex for the rest of my life, I'd rather be with girls. Now, while mm-hmm. detectives found paperwork in the house regarding sex change operations, and there's apparently he apparently promised to deposit or put down a deposit. Mm-hmm. Um, although I don't see how he could have put down a deposit when they didn't have anything, they didn't have any money. Um, you know that may have been Plan B or 
plan for defense if he gets caught. Because he knew he was going to get caught. I mean, he wasn't a he – was, he was good to a point, but he wasn't great. So he was going to eventually get caught. Right. Um, so uh, that is that. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons I don't believe that he is legitimately transgender. I think it's an angle. Right. I mean, it may well and I, I just, I don't, and that's why I won't call him by any other pronoun, you know, because right. um, I think it's just an angle. And I, I, and I only mean that as to this person, Skylar DeLeon. Hmm. Okay. You know, um, and again, I mean, he's, you know, his penchant for lying, his penchant for inventing stories about being a hitman, about being in this elite force in the Marines. Um, you know, the fact that he said that Tom Hawks was selling drugs, was smuggling drugs from Mexico into California. So I just I, I just don't I don't believe him. True. So um, so that is that is uh, Jennifer Henderson. We can't talk too much about DeLeon and Kennedy because their cases aren't final. Uh, McCain, McChain pled guilty. Uh, he was sentenced to 20 years. He's eligible for parole in September of 2021. And Myron Gardner also pled guilty and served, I think, five years. But he was like a go. He was go between that put Skyler in touch with Kennedy. So, um, but yeah, and the the saddest saddest part is is that had he applied himself in life at a job and we've seen this he's he's not the first killer we've seen had he applied himself in school in jobs he would have gone very far in his life and would not be on death row mm-hmm. very true Um, so that is Skylar DeLeon. 
And like I said, I'm kind of glad. I, I'm kind of glad Caitlin's not here because I I know that she. Um, I know that she has sympathy for the transgender community mm-hmm. and now accepts the Leon as part of it. Right. But, yeah, and claims about him being transgender aren't even corroborated. You know, the people, the family that he lived with, the family members that he lived with as a child, they don't talk about finding him dressed up in girls' clothing, playing with dolls, expressing, you know, uh, expressing that he was in the wrong body or that he didn't feel like he was in the right body or, you know, whatever, which are things that generally with transgender experience happen. Unless it's a publicity stunt. Uh-huh. So, um, I, I think it might have caused some friction between us because I just, I don't, I don't give it any credence at all. I think it's just right. another, it's a con that he's going to use. And, you know, he's, he's, He's and he's willing to go to those lengths. Of course, right now he's only taking hormones. I haven't, I haven't heard about any kind of surgery. Although he is trying to make the state of California pay for it. Um. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I think it's yeah, it's a con because he doesn't want to be in jail with men. He wants to be in jail with women. Right, and I can see, I, you know, we're talking about criminals here. Come on now. If you don't think that somebody would try that, you're kind of crazy. Yeah, or naive. Not crazy, you're right. naive. True. So, so that is uh, that is State of California versus Jennifer Henderson. Of course, it's ongoing. Um and we will keep up with what happens. And as soon as DeLeon and or Kennedy's direct appeals conclude, we'll get a, you know we'll get the cases on the schedule. Briefing is done in each of their cases. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, briefing was done in 2018, I believe. But the state, of, the California Supreme Court, I guess because the way their post-conviction laws are, you don't have to go to the the, the trial court. You go, you can go directly to the California Supreme Court, and so they're not only deciding direct appeals; they're deciding state post-conviction as well. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's see. Uh, the respondent's brief was filed in DeLeon. Was that DeLeon? Hang on a second. My papers are sticking together. I hate when that happens. I want to make sure I'm not in Kennedy when I need to be in DeLeon and vice versa. All right. All right. 
Let's see. Um, okay. Briefing in DeLeon was concluded. The appellant's reply brief was filed on June 3rd, 2019. Mm-hmm. So that concludes briefing, but it doesn't appear that um, it doesn't appear that they've requested oral argument or anything. The last order in here is changing DeLeon's name um, and granting his request for judicial notice of the name change and the gender change. Mm-hmm. But other than that, um, nothing. And then Kennedy, um, his briefing concluded in and man, the the friggin' they let so many extensions of time go for briefs on both sides. I think the any other state court would be like, hold on a second, buddy. <laughs> Y'all need to get your shit together and get this filed. Um, looking, okay, the respondent's brief was filed in 2017. The reply brief was filed September 20th, 2017. And then the last thing is... Uh, in 2019 where a different attorney from the attorney general's office was assigned. Mm -hmm. So again, that's three years and four years, two years and four years that those appeals remain pending, which is scary. True, true. So um, the other good thing, though, is that uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, if they apply for risk with the U.S. Supreme Court, that'll give us a a, a lot of records because the U.S. Supreme Court now is – their records are available online for free. Okay. Okay. So – so that is the case. And uh, it's I haven't heard any thunder in a while. Uh, I can't see lightning because the the desk has a big old bookshelf in front of the window. But I haven't heard any lightning in a while, and I don't hear any rain. So it looks like hopefully they said the storms were going to be training over you know, over New Orleans and. I'm hoping that doesn't happen. I'm yeah. hoping that the storm said, blows through and is over with. We're supposed to be in for some rougher weather, I want to say Thursday, so I'm sure it's probably what you guys got going on. Yeah, probably so. 
All right. So um, I guess we're ready to we're ready to call it a night. Let's slap a bow on her. Yeah. Oh, and I do, but I do want to say um, Matt Hawks and Ryan Hawks, Tom's sons and Jackie's stepsons. Right. Uh, they are great advocates for their parents, and they mm-hmm. have continued throughout this whole process to advocate for their parents, especially Ryan, who is a dead ringer for his dad. Okay. That's good. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, Jace now is a teenager. Mm-hmm. And they've kept, but they've kept Tom and Jackie in Jace's life. He may not, he uh, may not be able to remember them, but he knows who they are. Lisa Elena wanted me to tell you here. She got a comment. I wanted me to tell you hi. Hi, Elena. <laughs> so, thank you. Well, let's go on. Let's go on. Put All right. Or do you lose power? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, March 30th, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for episode four, State of Texas versus Celeste Beard Johnson. In October 1999, Johnson's wealthy husband, Stephen Beard, was shot in the stomach while he slept in his room in their Austin mansion. Beard lingered for months before succumbing to his injuries. Police tied the shooting to Tracy Tarleton, a woman Beard met while in drug rehab or mental hospital. Police uh, in March 2002, prior to her trial, Tartan realized that she'd been duped by Johnson and implicated her in the death of Beard. We'll talk about the murder of Stephen Beard, the evidence against Johnson, and her eventual trial, conviction, and sentence. Then we'll talk about her direct appeal and post-conviction process and where the case stands today. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.